Hello from Los Angeles in the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. It's Michael Benner. We're live at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. It's 1 o'clock in the East and 17 hours universal. Good to be with you. Our topic for the day today is sports psychology and peak performance. And I think you're going to enjoy this even if you're not particularly athletic because we all live and exist and perform in physical bodies. And to a large extent, what it's about is learning to be aware of your body, the way you move in your body. Movement awareness is actually a whole field um, related to kinesiology or kinesthetics and A lot of people are very aware of how they exist in their body. Many people, however, are not. I was one of those people that spent many, many years living above the shoulders, so to speak, and not really very aware of how I existed in my body. Then, if you're somebody who likes to play softball or basketball, or you're really into golf or tennis or maybe racquetball or squash, these are all popular games. I think you'll get even more benefit out of our free forum today. And if you like what you hear, I hope you'll join us for the premium training that follows at uh, 10.30 right after this program. And of course, Both are available by replay on demand, uh, streaming, downloadable as MP3s, and this particular free forum is also available as a podcast, an automatic download from the iTunes store. So let's talk a little about sports psychology and peak performance. I think my familiarity with this field goes back to the early 70s when I was interviewing people on the radio, and particularly after coming to Los Angeles in the mid and then late 70s, a lot of people coming from Eastern Europe who were working in the field of accelerated learning. I remember interviewing, for example, a a man who had escaped from the Iron Curtain had a great story of swimming rivers at night to try to escape from the Soviet-dominated rule of the Eastern Bloc. And his name was Ivan Barzikov, and he had done a lot of work in the field of accelerated learning and developed this um, SALT Institute. I think it was the Strategic Accelerated Learning Technology or something, S-A-L-C-T, SALT. And accelerated learning included what's since come to be known as sports psychology. There was also a very important book that was popular at the time, uh, explosively popular, first published in 1974, entitled The Inner Game by Tim Galloway. He was a uh, tennis player and Harvard-educated and initially wrote The Inner Game of Tennis, but soon it was so popular it 
was followed by the inner game of golf and then the inner game in business and at work. And this was an application of Eastern philosophies, particularly of relaxation, as in meditation or contemplation, combined with non-judgment. This was important. In other words, in a game like, oh, let's say golf, which is a very unusual game because between times you hit the ball, it's just laying there. And you, <laughs> unlike squash or, uh, you know, tennis or many other games, the ball's often in flight constantly. But in golf, the damn thing just lays there and waits for you to take another shot. And so the idea of not judging along the way, every step of the way, not trying to decide, is this a good thing or a bad thing? But he called it the inner game. You also, if you're familiar with Eastern philosophy, call it the Tao, T-A-O, pronounced like D-O-W, the Tao of golf, which is, it is what it is. And so accept it and work with it and play the game with a certain carefree elegance and grace, not judging the rightness or wrongness, the goodness or badness, but just to be at ease, open and accepting. And that, of course, was an Eastern philosophy that Galloway had applied to his so-called inner game at the time. Then there was guided imagery or visualization and the importance of breath control. People with a martial arts background or who had studied yoga might say, oh, well, I recognize a lot of that from my particular discipline in the martial arts or in yoga or Tai Chi Chuan, uh, Qigong, a lot of what looks like yoga is martial arts slowed down, or a lot of what is taught as self-defense in combative martial arts is yoga sped up. And a lot of it comes from the study of the way animals move and the grace and the elegance and the awareness, again, that animals have of existing in their bodies. Animals are very zen-like in that regard because they're not distracted, as human beings tend to be, by thoughts that drag us into the past, our regrets and resentments, or push us into the future, fears about what may be. And instead, an animal tends to be right in the moment, right in the present reality of now, what's happening Right now, we tend to miss a lot of that by our tendency, as I say, to live in the past or the future. That's what thoughts do. They're largely fear-based and they carry you away. So this is the inception of sports psychology as I came to understand it. I loved it right off the bat because it fit with what I had learned through self-hypnosis and meditation in the early 70s, right out of college. And so I began to, in addition to being a hypnotherapist and working with people, 
teaching meditation and mindfulness, I offered some sports psychology training to individuals, to my racquetball partners, for example. And I also did some work in the early 80s with the USC women's tennis team. They did very well. They were, I think, in 1981, which was one year I worked with them, they were 13th in the nation. And again, it was interesting because these girls at USC, they had heard of Galloway's inner game. Most good tennis players had, but the Valley girls, so to speak, from Southern California or elsewhere in the United States were much um, less inclined to see the benefits or the wisdom in sports psychology than the handful of girls who had come in from Europe, particularly a couple that were there from Eastern Europe. And they had learned sports psychology, as it's come to be called, or the inner game, in high school in Eastern Europe. And again, a lot of the research came out of Eastern Bloc, uh, Soviet-dominated countries, as well as Russia uh, herself. So these young people were much more inclined to recognize immediately the wisdom in what we were attempting to do. I also worked for a couple of years in Burbank, California, with the Burroughs High School baseball team. And I enjoyed that even more because I'd been a baseball player, never was much of a tennis player. But these principles of sports psychology and peak performance can be applied in every sport and every area in very similar ways. So it didn't really matter that I was coaching, a, or I wasn't the coach, I was a consultant to the coaching staff at prestigious school like USC, even though I was not much of a tennis player. I think that was part of the resistance, frankly. It's like, what is this uh, guy who doesn't play tennis and could lose a few pounds at that doing in the locker room, teaching us, um, or in the training room? It wasn't like we <laughs> actually got to go in the locker room, but uh, teaching us uh, about uh, the game of tennis when he's uh, not even sure how to hold the racket, right? But I was teaching visualization and how to breathe. And here's something to consider that whatever the game, whether it's a really slow game played step-by-step step, like golf or a much faster game like tennis or racquetball or squash or a game like uh, basketball or Again, back to being sort of slow and methodical, a game like baseball. There's a couple of basic approaches you want to consider. One is the preparation before you throw the ball, hit the ball, serve the ball, volley, whatever. And then there is the sports psychology, what you do with your mind while you're actually actively playing the game. And in both cases, visualization and breathing are really the two core principles. I was reading not long ago about Jack Nicholas's approach to this in a game, again, where you have 
these stages. You hit the ball and then you walk or ride in the cart and then you have all the time you want before you hit the ball again. It's not like most games in that way. And so he said, you know, whether he was teeing up a ball or in the middle of the fairway on his way to the green or maybe he was putting and already on the green, didn't really matter. He would always break visualization, sports psychology, or the inner game into several steps. He said, number one, I would visualize in my mind's eye where I wanted the ball to land. And that needed to be realistic. In other words, you could consider that every shot's going to be a hole in one and visualize yourself hitting the ball perfectly. But that's often impossible. But you could, in a realistic sense, imagine yourself hitting it farther than you often do. Uh, You could imagine every time you address the ball, hitting it as far as you ever have and maybe a little bit more. You certainly can imagine the ball landing in a position that's favorable to your next shot, you know, just like a game of uh, billiards or pool where you not only consider the shot, but where it's going to leave you for the next shot. So that's one thing that he would do before hitting the ball. Then he would do a second visualization in his mind's eye of the ball actually in flight. And he would see this in slow motion, leaving a dotted line trail, going exactly where he wants the ball to go. So now he may be allowing for the wind or anticipating that if he hits the ball high, the wind's going to be a little different up there. And he'll actually visualize and account for all of that, creating an expectation in his mind of what he wants the ball to do, ideally. But again, it's got to fit into what's believable and what's rational and likely to happen, though you can lift your expectations and go for the ideal shot, right? Push the envelope a little. And then thirdly, he would get outside of himself and see himself actually hitting the ball with the best possible swing. Now, I just spent three or four minutes describing that. He would do it within five or six seconds, all right? So you take a breath, you swing the club a couple of times to shake off the tension, you stomp your feet, go through whatever little ritual you want to go through to shake off the physical tension, which is one of the ways we carry stress, the way we carry stress in our bodies, and then run that little movie, one, two, three, those three pictures, where the ball lands ideally, how the ball travels to that location ideally, and then as if watching yourself hit the ball, the perfect swing, boom, 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 visualizing those three pictures in your mind. Okay? So, It's similar whether you're playing tennis or maybe bowling or a pickup basketball game or touch football or billiards or any other game that you want to play, table tennis. You want to visualize the ideal outcome. 
Secondly, you want to control your breathing. When you exert yourself, for example, as you let go of the bowling ball, as you hit the golf ball or the tennis ball, as you release the basketball, visualizing it going in the perfect arc, dotted line, whoosh, whoosh, (laughs) whatever. Hit the baseball out of the park. If you think about it, that's a real task. I think it was Pete Rose that said, you have a round ball and a round bat, but you have to hit it square. Hitting a round ball squarely with a round bat is a challenge, maybe one of the most difficult of all in sports. But again, the visualization, and then as you power through and hit the ball or release the ball, depending on the sport you're playing, that's when you exhale, all right? So you inhale in the wind-up. Now I'm going back to pitching or um, an outfielder throwing the ball from deep in the outfield all the way into the infield or a baseball batter uh, who's standing there. Again, depending on the sport, as the actual point of contact or the expression of power approaches, you inhale, and then as you power through the swing, that's that's when you want to exhale. In baseball, I worked with a lot of pitchers, for example, teaching them, to inhale as they wound up, and to exhale as they released the ball, as they delivered the ball, visualizing the ball going almost like along a track right into the catcher's glove. And it's important that the catcher provide a target, okay? It has to be a specific target, not the whole batter's box, certainly not the batter himself or herself, but the catcher's glove is a target. And you deliver it, and before you release the ball, you see that ball going right along the path. If it's a curve you're throwing, you got to anticipate and visualize the curve. Okay. So you have, depending on the game, a process that you do in the stages when you're not playing, Right, Like, let's go to tennis or golf before you hit the ball or before you begin the volley and serve the ball. Uh, Various stages in baseball. When you're really not actively playing the sport, could be during a game or a match, but you're actually not playing the sport, it's time out. You have one set of visualization exercises that you do to prepare and then That's also considered sort of a practice. And then delivering the ball, playing the game actively, depends on the game. It's a little different. Some games like tennis or squash, I mean, it's very active. And bang, 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 you've got to have a strategy for during the actual playing of the game. Visualizing, breathing, visualizing, breathing, staying balanced and centered and self-aware. These are the primary secrets that comprise the inner game, so-called sports psychology. Also, never getting angry. I always thought John McEnroe was a put-on to intimidate the judge. 
I don't think, I don't know John McEnroe, so I can't say for certain, but it's hard for me to believe that a professional athlete would allow themselves to get angry. You have to be quite the contrary, non-judgmental. Even if you're way behind in the scoring, your attitude has to be something really wonderful can come from this. Even if you lose the game, it's a matter of, well, what did I learn that I can employ the next time? How can I be better? And this can be applied in individual activity. You know, maybe you're a bicyclist who never races, but just enjoys bicycling as a way to stay fit, to relax and manage stress. You're a rollerblader, or you could apply it to hiking and day hiking, backpacking, and just walking on trails to monitor your breathing, to be aware of the moment, to be in your body. There is such a thing as a walking meditation where you were aware of nothing but walking, the way you shift your center of gravity forward and then swing one leg forward to catch yourself as you fall and the way you land on your heel and roll onto the ball of your foot, push off with the ball of the foot and the toes as the next leg swings through. And just to be aware of that and apply your breathing to that, even if you don't think of it as a sport, this enriches the whole experience. So it's not just sports psychology, but peak performance as well. In the premium training, which begins in about five minutes, we're also going to play a program from our archive at our sister site, FocusedPassion.com, featuring my business partner Steve Snyder and myself talking about sports and even the history of sports, how sports started a couple of thousand years ago for a couple of reasons. Take the war out of men and the warrior who always wanted to go to war and looked forward to going to war. And sometimes he didn't have a war to get excited about. So how did he manage that anxiety and all of that adrenaline? Well, sports, often wrestling or some other running kind of a game. But also just to test yourself and your particular talents and to, as the military used to say, be all that you can be. What a great line that they stole that and made that about war itself. But to be all that you can be physically in terms of athletics and to test your ability. And frankly, sports is just fun and to physically exercise and to be skilled and to be competitive with other people. It's not about the winning, of course. It's about the playing of the game. And it, the bottom line is just a lot of fun. So the better you do, the more fun you're going to have. So there you go. That's our free forum webinar, which we'll podcast and stream to you. Hope you've enjoyed that. And if you'd like a little more detail, come on over to theagelesswisdom.com to register or enroll for a single class, or you get a nice discount for a 13-week quarter or full year. Theagelesswisdom.com, after the W's, the T-H-E is part of it. The W's dot theagelesswisdom.com. 
click on webinars, then premium training. You can enroll in about 60 seconds. The thank you page and an email will confirm the URL that you go to and the password you need. And we'll see you there in just a couple of minutes. If you're in Southern California, remember Sunday, August 4 is a day for our live public seminar in La Crescenta at Body and Soul. And that's at 1 o'clock this afternoon. We'll be talking about five basic meditation and contemplation techniques that you can learn and practice and use in your life. I think you're going to enjoy that a lot, so come on up to La Crescenta and again at our primary website, theagelesswisdom.com. There's a button that says public appearances and seminars where you can get all the information. Be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week. Hopefully see you this afternoon if you're in Southern California. This is Michael Benner. So long from L.A.